1: Hello dear Mogwai internet friends, just a note before we get started, this is a public service announcement. There are a few minor audio glitches that were due to a bad cable, 99.999% of this episode with Cal, which turned out amazing, he brought the thunder in every way possible, 99.999% of it is totally fine. So please enjoy that, and I am telling you all this so that I don't get endless shit on the web about these tiny, tiny little things. I am aware of them, and I wanted to get this out to you as opposed to postponing it indefinitely to try to fix it, which we spent many, many hours trying to do, and it is easiest just to ship it out. And uh, listen to the stories, if you don't get my question, listen to the story for 30 seconds, and it'll make perfect sense after that. So, there you have it, and thank you for listening. Hello boys and girls, lemurs and squirrels, this is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers or attempt to do something lofty like that, but to drill into the specifics. And that is where this podcast is different. I will ask them all of the nitty-gritty details so that you can tease out the habits, routines, favorite books, etc. to apply to your own life. But... This episode involves Cal Fussman, and for those of you who know Cal, well, he is a master storyteller, so sometimes the best policy is just to let him go. And Cal appeared on this podcast, pretty much no one had heard him interviewed at that point, and he's become quite the internet favorite. Cal At Cal Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N on Twitter, is a New York Times bestselling author and was the writer at large or is the writer at large for Esquire Magazine, where he's best known for being the primary writer of the What I Learned feature. Austin Chronicle has described Cal's interviewing skills as peerless, and he's really transformed oral history into an art form in many ways. He's interviewed icons who've shaped the last 50 years of world history, Mikhail Gorbachev, Jimmy Carter, Ted Kennedy, Bezos, Branson, Jack Welch, De Niro... Clint Eastwood, Al Pacino. It just goes on. Woody Allen, Muhammad Ali, John Wooden, Serene Williams, everybody. On top of that, Cal spent 10 straight years, ages ago, traveling the world, swimming over 18-foot tiger sharks, rolling around with mountain gorillas in Rwanda, and searching for gold in the Amazon. (laughs) This is the second episode with Cal. It's completely self-sufficient. You can listen to it without having heard the first one. The first one includes all sorts of stories about him trying to box Julio Cesar Chavez, about uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, etc. In this episode, we talk about Muhammad Ali, what he learned from Muhammad Ali, his entire experience with Muhammad, and uh, so much more. I asked many of you, via facebook and twitter what should i ask cal in this round too and probably 70 percent of you just said he is my favorite storyteller of all time please just let him talk for another four hours so that's that's effectively what i did but it's not four hours long so i hope you enjoy this as much as i did i never get tired of talking to cal he's so good at what he does he's such a nice guy and he's such an incredible storyteller here you have it cal fussman at cal fussman on twitter enjoy cal my good friend welcome back to the show oh thanks so much i'm ready to walk the tightrope with you (laughs) and speaking of walking the tightrope someone who's not ready to walk any tightropes is my poor pup molly who got sedated for x-rays earlier today who's been entertaining us and gaining our sympathy by wandering around and staring off into space she looks as high as a kite and you mentioned to me that she should be listening to tom waits tom Tom Waits. waits And a name I did not recognize. I'm embarrassed to say. Well, if Molly was
0: to hear Tom Tom Waits sing,
1: the piano
0: has been drinking, <laughs> my necktie is asleep. That's uh, that's pretty way the pretty well the way she's looking right now. <laughs>
1: Thematically appropriate. I thought we would start, and of course we've been chatting over the last two days, spending time together about Muhammad Ali. And I just want to pass it over to you because I know it, it, it hit you quite tremendously hard, it would seem. And unlike most people listening, uh, you had direct interaction with Muhammad Ali. So I'll just pass it over to you for your thoughts. For me, it was almost like having your childhood
0: end when you're in your 50s uh, on the day that he died. Uh, it's very hard Uh, to describe the feeling. I hadn't ever really felt anything like it. And in fact, at a time where everybody was like sitting down in front of the television looking for reports, I just like curled up in bed. I kind of knew the story. I I knew everything. So there was nothing more for me to learn. And I was just uh, terrifically saddened because uh, he was my childhood hero. And there really are no longer many like him.
1: What made him unique? And how did you grow to or get to know him?
0: I, ne- I didn't meet him until uh, 2003. And at, at that point, uh, The world knew that he had Parkinson's disease. We had seen him at the Olympics with the torch. So let me back up to when I was a kid, seeing him for the first time. And it's very hard for a lot of people to understand like what the 60s were like if you didn't live through them. Because every day you woke up and something else happened that made you go, what, 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 you know, whether it was, uh, sadly, the shootings of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or Bobby Kennedy, or could have been Woodstock, or landing on the moon. Every day seemed to bring something that you didn't expect. And Ali was in the middle of it. That's when he came of age. He won the heavyweight championship in 1964. So he kind of embodied... For me, uh, the spirit of asking questions, uh, because you know, at the time, he had won the Olympic gold medal in 1960. And the story goes, we don't really know if it's true, that when he came back to Louisville with his medal, uh, he wasn't allowed into a restaurant uh, and, and, and able to sit with white people. Uh, and so he took his gold medal and he threw it in the Ohio River. Whether the story is true or not, it makes a point. And he was, in my mind, the voice of reason uh, amidst what at the time was just crazy behavior. Uh, it's like hard to imagine that there were places or, where black people couldn't walk into and sit next to white people. I'm like walking around now and I'm just seeing, you know, in these days of Black Lives Matter, just how integrated we are. You go to an airport and there's not, no longer a thought about this. But back then, that was the, the order of the day. And Muhammad Ali was, was somebody who, who stood up to that and let people know, hey, this is wrong, uh, and he did it in a way that made people laugh at times through poetry. He's like the first rapper and you could not take your eyes off. And the other thing that's kind of interesting about it was there were only three networks that you could really watch in those days.
1: Right. We were talking about this. is like kind of BBC one, two, three, and four. In a sense.
0: Yeah. And, and if you were, you have the camera on him, one of the most, charismatic figures in the world nobody else is going to compete with that so everybody was watching him and it's not like now in the days of the internet and tmz where he would have been followed relentlessly relentlessly and every detail of his life would have been on the internet Uh, you only knew so much but he was everywhere probably the most popular or the most well-known person in the world. And when the Vietnam War really started to kick in and Ali was inducted into the draft, uh, the way he stood up to it and you know his famous line, I ain't got nothing against no Viet Cong, it's just white people sending black people to kill yellow people. At the time, this is like, Slice the country in half. Either you loved him for it or you hated him for it. Either you were with the kids out on the street who were protesting against the, the war or with the people who were beating them over the head. Very hard for somebody who's young now to understand that time. We talk about like the conventions uh, that we're having this year. I mean, people should go back and look at the 1968. Uh, Democratic convention. I mean, it was a free for all. There was all kinds of violence outside of it, and and Ali lived amidst this, and he was always in my mind asking the right questions: Why are we in Vietnam? Why can't I sit next to somebody who has white skin in a restaurant? Uh, And it was it was very simple, and and then. There were so many people who hated him for asking those questions and for changing his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad, Muhammad Ali uh, that he was really reviled by a huge number of people in this country. And for him to like constantly stand up and, and risk going to jail for what he believed in the faith that he had and then it was backed up by his bravery in the ring when he fought with joe frazier and he fought with george foreman people thought that he he was going to get killed when he fought george foreman who
1: was undefeated and had knocked out just about everybody look like the incredible hulk i mean it was i remember i think it was uh in the sort of warm-ups leading up to am i getting this right it was in zaire uh, might be getting my locations mixed up. I sometimes conflate the Frazier fights and Foreman, but uh, Ali didn't, uh, and others didn't want to watch Foreman warming up on the heavy bag because yeah. it's just such a spectacle of force and impact. Yeah, you you didn't want
0: to believe that was coming in at you. And yet when they got into the ring to fight, Ali basically laid back on the ropes and let Foreman throw that at him, uh, all the while saying, is that all you got, George? that all you got? And a funny line by Foreman was after four rounds, he said, yeah, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> and then by the, by the eighth, Ali hit him with a few straight punches and down he went. He was just exhausted. Uh, but over again, we, we saw him take tremendous punishment uh, and come back uh, as he aged. And you just had a tremendous sense of belief when you followed him and so for me the idea that he was always asking these questions that were important to ask that were the most important issues of the day and then when he stood up to everything that was in front of him with full faith in himself in my mind that was the definition of a hero and so In 2003, uh, Esquire magazine was celebrating its 70th anniversary. And it had always been my dream to do a magazine story about Muhammad Ali from the time I was a kid. And so they sent me out to write this cover story based on reportage in Dublin, Ireland, where Muhammad was in town for the Special Olympics. He was going to uh, help inaugurate the Games And so I went out there and it was one series of experiences after another that were completely surprising to me because, you know, when you have a hero, you often don't want to meet them because they're your hero before you know
1: who they really are. Right. And you might, you might encounter the hero with clay feet. Exactly. And suffer the disillusionment, disappointment.
0: Yeah. And you don't want to walk away from your hero, disappointed. So I didn't know what was going to to happen. But keep in mind, this is, we should should cite this, this is seven years after 1996, the Atlanta Olympics, when he did something else that I thought was very brave, because at that point, everyone knew he had Parkinson's disease. And he stood with the Olympic torch uh, in front of the world. The torch was in his shaking hand, and he had to put it, into the Olympic cauldron to get it to light. And for what seemed like an endless amount of time, he couldn't get it in the right place and his hand is shaking. And it was like the world was holding its collective breath. And all of a sudden he got in the right place. It erupted and the flame erupted and so did everybody's heart. And from that point on, 96 to 2003, we hadn't really seen that much about him, so the editors basically said, "Go tell us how's he doing." So I go to these Olympics, uh, the Special Olympics, to meet him, and he's in a hotel, and he he knows in advance that he's my childhood hero, and he comes through the double doors of his bedroom suite, and he's walking kind of slowly, and I just put out my hand to shake his hands, and he just threw out his arms and like hugged me with a big embrace. And after that, he's moving on really slow, tender steps. And then he kind of slumps down in this cushy leather chair. I take the sofa on the side and I say to him, Champ, I came here to find out all the wisdom that you've accumulated in the world. He doesn't seem to be paying attention. He seems to be paying attention to his right arm, which is like trembling back and forth. And now both of his arms are really starting to tremble. And I'm starting to think, what should I do? I, I call his wife. And now, not only his arms are trembling, but his torso, his legs are shaking, his breaths are coming almost in gasps. And now I'm really starting to get nervous. I said, champ, champ, are you okay? And then slowly his head rises to the point where he's at eye level with me. And he looks me in the eye and he says, scared you, huh? <laughs> and it only got more confusing. It only got more confusing. So, so the Olympics get started Special Olympics, and there was there was one moment that was like when it really hit me, like you asked, like why was he your hero? All right? So, Muhammad uh, is going to meet with Nelson Mandela, and Muhammad's best friend and photographer Howard Bingham is is with us, and Mohammed's wife, and I'm coming along. And we meet Mandela and we're walking to a hotel suite to sit down and talk. And on the way, Mandela is saying how when he was imprisoned in his younger days and he would hear news of Muhammad Ali, how much it inspired him. And I'm standing there like looking at Nelson Mandela thinking, hold it, like my hero is Nelson Mandela's hero. And that's when it really hit me what Muhammad Ali meant to the world. And we went, had this this nice meeting, and then the Olympics get started. And Ali was there to go around the track in a golf cart and kind of wave to the crowd and let everybody uh, just get everything started off on a really high note. And so I'm down at the base of the stadium with him and the golf cart comes out and Muhammad gets slowly gets on, he gets into his seat and Howard, his best friend and photographer gets on the back and he waves me. Come on, get on, get on, get on. So I like run, I hop on the golf cart and it was like an amazing experience because you're driving around. There's 80,000 people in Croke park and you know, they just, wherever Ali went, it was this, that same chant, that, Ali, Ali. And it was almost like this energy is coming from the top of the stadium, like down on us. And then Ali would put up his hand and then like the energy would get pushed back all the way to the top. And then it would come down again and it was back and forth and back and forth. And I was always the one, like at the top of the stadium, <laughs> screaming. So it it was like an amazing experience to see the power that he still had. And yet when we had to leave that day, he needed a wheelchair. And so my head was, it was like a mystery to me because he had all this power and yet it, he was very vulnerable and his body was like breaking down. And I was just trying to, figure this out to, to write the story to explain like how's Muhammad Ali doing and it was it was confounding to me because one day we would go out to dinner and after dinner we're coming out of the restaurant and like a huge throng of people is coming it's it's time like to get in the car and go we just can't be avalanched like that and he needs to move fast and he does and then the day after that, he can't speak much above a whisper at that time, but he's like doing magic tricks for people. And then when we got back to his home in Michigan, I remember he had just taken his medicine for Parkinson's disease. We're sitting on the couch and his tongue, the medicine turned his tongue orange. And we're talking and all of a sudden he just like falls asleep. And his left leg is jangling into mine and i'm thinking how how can i possibly make sense of this it doesn't know i i can't really describe these contradictions and there's no question i can really ask that's going to unlock this mystery so i'm getting down to like the last day that i'm scheduled to be with him and muhammad's wife lani says you know you're, you you do not work out much anymore, Muhammad. Why don't you just go with Cal to the gym and just do a little workout? And Muhammad kind of rolls his eyes. Oh, okay. Come on. So he takes me over to the gym on the property and it's not really a gym. It's more like a museum. We walk in and the ring looks like nobody's ever stepped foot in it. There's no smell of sweat. There's exercise equipment all around the ring. And it looks like it's just out of boxes. All four walls uh, have mirrors on them. And above the mirrors are photos, great photos of Ali fighting his arch rival, Joe Frazier. Uh, There there were other photos too, but those were the ones that really stood out to me uh, because the trilogy that they fought was like the thrill of my childhood. It's what I lived for. And I, I knew like everything about Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier down to like the childhood stories that define their styles in the ring. Like for instance, Muhammad, when he was a kid, he would have his younger brother, Rudy pick up rocks in the street and throw the rocks at Muhammad's head. Back then he was cashless, cashless. And as the rock would be a, approaching his head just about to hit he would just throw his head back lean away from it and let the rock slide by and that was exactly the style he adopted in the ring he would dance like no ever no heavyweight ever before him danced if you got close enough to throw a punch he's just going to lean back make you miss and then he'd hit you like 20 times faster than a shoe shine guy could buff a pair of shoes Joe Frazier, on the other hand, very different story. Short, stocky. And here's where that left hook came from. When he was a kid, he grew up on a farm in Beaufort, South Carolina. And his dad had only one arm. Uh, it it had been, uh, nobody knows the real story, but uh, apparently there had been trouble with some other woman and um, some shooting and and so Joe's dad only had one arm and they would work this cross saw back and forth, Joe and his dad. And as Joe would, Joe's dad would use the right arm and Joe would be using his left. So he's just sawing back and forth for years with that left hand. He had the muscles that are developing as he's going back and back and forth, back and forth. And the power that he developed in this left hand turned into this, Phenomenal left hook that came out of the side out of nowhere. And it was the only punch that a kid who could move away from rocks in the middle of the street was vulnerable to because you didn't see it coming. All the times, except at the very end of his career, that Muhammad Ali got knocked down, always with a left hook. He just, it was his kryptonite. And here you've got a guy who is like five foot 10, 205 pounds of relentless kryptonite coming at him. (laughs) And when Ali fought Frazier, like it was like thunder versus lightning. The thing about it was when they fought, Ali had already refused to go into the army He was stripped of his heavyweight championship. The government wouldn't let him fight. The state commissions wouldn't let him fight for three and a half years. That he lost the prime of his career. And then when he was finally able to come back in 1970, he wasn't as fast. He couldn't dance the way he danced when he was 22 and 23. At this point, he's 28, 29. And so when you, and he never had anybody like Joe Frazier coming at him before. So you had on March the 8th, 1971, Thunder vs. Lightning, two, never before seen, two undefeated, legitimate heavyweight champions confronting each other. And Frank Sinatra was holding, was a photographer in the front row. Everybody had to be ringside for this. The whole world was watching it was like the sporting event of the century. And so what would happen, or what happened the first fight anyway, is Ali started to get in trouble because the, the, Joe Frazier just w- would not stop. And the the left hooks kept coming. And Ali was able to get into the minds of a lot of his opponents. And he tried to get into the mind of Joe Frazier. He'd be, like, Frazier would be hitting him with shots and Ali would be saying to him, you can't beat me. I'm God. And like that, that would have worked on some other people. And Joe Frazier just looked at him and said, Well, God's going to get his ass whooped tonight. <laughs> he kept throwing punches. And so when Ali would get into trouble and Frazier got him into trouble, he had this corner man named Drew Bundini Brown, who was the guy who. When you, hear, when you hear the phrase, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, that's that came from both Muhammad and Bandini. They would, they would kind of sing it. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Rumble, young man, rumble. And so when Ali got in trouble, Bandini would, in the most poetic ways, say things to help lift him up. He'd think, the world needs you, champ. Go to the well one's more. Go to the well once, Mo, And almost always, Ollie would reach inside of him, find whatever was deep in the well and use it to lift him over the bar. So I'm looking at these pictures above the mirrors on the wall and I'm almost hearing Bandini's voice in my head. Go to the well once, Mo," And I realize that's what I got to do. That is my question here. In order to write this piece, I got to find out what's still in the well. So I look around the gym and there is a rack of boxing gloves. And I'm saying to myself, you think you should take the risk? I I don't know. And then I said, what the hell? Let me try it. Because one of the things that I've learned as an interviewer is, when you get to the end of an interview, that's when you can always ask the toughest question. And so I, I take four gloves off this rack and I put two on Muhammad's hands and two on mine. Now, I should actually, if if, if people heard the first
1: installation of inst- our conversation, <laughs>
0: yeah, then they know about the story of me fighting against Julio Cesar Chavez and Which so,
1: begins, just as the side note, with you sitting on like the couch eating potato chips berating Julio Cesar Chavez on TV and your wife saying something along the lines of, oh yeah, okay, you're going to fight Julio Cesar Chavez. And you're like, damn right, I'm going to fight Julio Cesar Chavez. And long story short, because you should listen to the long version, uh, you ended up traveling by hook and crook and donkey and everything else. To make it yeah, so we went, we, we did. We did a lot of serious boxing tricks.
0: Well, that and that's the whole point here. When I train, I trained for like six months to get in the ring for one round with Julio Cesar Chavez and I trained in the exact style of Joe Frazier. So I, I could do Joe Frazier so well, I, mean, I could even sound like Joe Frazier. So I got these gloves on. He's got the gloves on. But I don't I don't come at him. I don't ask to go to the ring. I just start to move toward the heavy bag. And Smoke and Joe had this style where he's like bobbing back and forth, his head moving left to right and his his left hand would be doing like a figure eight in front of his head and his right hand would be figure eighting in figure eating in front of his jaw and he's going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth and he's low and he's in a crouch and he's just relentlessly pursuing and then he'd get close to the left hand saying, and he'd be throwing that left hook and so I'm in that crouch, I'm bobbing and waving and I'm looking at Ali out of the corner of my eyes to see like what kind of reaction I'm going to get and it was like, Watching his eyebrows arched, it was like watching a sleeping lion awakened by an old familiar scent. And he looks over and he says, you good. <laughs> so now I'm like, I hear that. Now I'm starting to hit into the back. I'm throwing my left hooks, right hand. left, hand. And Ali steps up. And now he's like, hmm, hm hm, And he's throwing left right, left right, left right. I said, You think that's gonna keep me off? Now I'm really in the crowd. Hum da hum-da-hom-da. Hum, da. He steps up, hmm, hmm and rights, left and rights, jab, 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 jab left. left some rights. I come back, hum, da, hum, da, hum, da. and all of a sudden, he looks at me in a way that says, okay. So that's your question. And slowly, with his left hand, he waves me away from the bag, and he waits till I'm away from the bag, and then I saw something I never thought I would ever see again. Muhammad Ali started dancing, and he's dancing around the bag. He's moving, not like when he was 20, but he still had the rhythm, he still had the grace, and he's moving around the bag, and he's looking at himself in the mirror. And as he's looking at himself, you could see his chest come up, and then his head come up, and he's dancing and he's dancing, and then all of a sudden he like, stop, pivots and <laughs> There was like 40 straight shots right into the bag, Really rapid fire. And I, I'm in disbelief. And his last shot, if the bag had been like a heavyweight fighter, he might have knocked him down. I'm standing there just staring, don't know what to say. I, it's like hard to process what I've just seen. <laughs> You're like,
1: no one is going to believe me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? And as he's going away from the bag, his legs cross. And he starts to go down and I'm saying, no, 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 this is not happening. No, no, please. And now he's going down, down, down. And there are mats on the ground and he falls on the mats. And now I'm thinking, what did you do Cal? Oh, like you're idiot. Why, why did you do that? And I go, I'm paralyzed for a second, but then I start to move over to like help him get up before I can reach him flips over and he starts doing stomach crunches <laughs> <laughs> and then he's doing sit-ups and then he's on his back legs bicycling in the air then he gets up and he goes over to super leg press it's on like 250 pounds he grips it pushing it back and forth I said champ you, you don't have to do this like you know I, I seen you champ I seen you don't worry about it I know what's in the well and he just looked at me and he said, feels good. And I thought I had pushed him as far as I could, but he had more to give. And so after this, we go back to the house and he knew that I wanted, I wanted his wisdom. And he tells me to sit down on a table outside the kitchen. I'm sitting down and he comes to me with a piece of paper And on this paper, it's just filled with wisdom. And I'm going down the lines one after another, and he points to one in the middle. And it says, God will not place a burden on a man's shoulder knowing that he cannot handle it. And that kind of summed everything up. But for me, the story went a little further. Uh, because he went into the kitchen and he came out with two bowls in his left hand and a quart of ice cream <laughs> in his right. And you know how much I love ice cream, Tim. <laughs> so I got a chance to sit at the table and have ice cream with my childhood hero. And that is my like, in, in enduring memory. And... It was, just, it, it was just sad to, in one minute, know that this man who had been with me like all my life, was not with us anymore. But the thing that really pushed me, because I, I was called um, by the editor of Esquire uh, because the magazine was shipping out on the exact day that Muhammad died. And so he wanted to hold off the issue and, you know, make sure that we represented. Esquire had followed Ali's career like just about no other magazine, maybe Sports Illustrated. You can make the same claim. Uh, And so I'm sitting there charged with, like, writing this essay of what what he meant to me. And, and what, what really hit me is when I started to think forward. I started to think of all of the, the kids now. And I'm wondering, like, what, what kind of heroes do they have? Do they have a Muhammad Ali? And I don't, I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because we don't have a Nelson Mandela who, Saw Muhammad Ali as a hero. It's just a completely different time, and I w- wondered like what this absence w- might mean for this next generation going going forward. Who are their heroes? What are they going to get out of it? And it really it really has pushed me to think, and uh, and to think a lot about the, this millennial generation, which we were laughing about yesterday because everybody
1: says the word millennial. I tried to look it up on, I was like, we need to sort this out. We're at dinner, having some, having some wine. And the first article that pops up say, everyone can agree that millennials are the worst. And the next line is something along the lines of, but no one can seem to define what exactly a millennial is. (laughs) Well, there you go.
0: And the the amazing thing to me, for some reason, I don't know what it is. And I think you have the same characteristic where Uh, certainly you do. I'm just starting to see little vibrations of it where there's an attraction among the millenniums to you. I know that because they all come over to me and say, oh, I heard the podcast that you did with Tim Ferriss. So there's like this whole arc of millennials out there that I know are listening to you. And they're also starting to come up to me and I really, I feel for, the, for, for this generation. I feel for them because I don't think they have a Muhammad Ali. Uh, you know, a lot of them were behind Bernie Sanders. And to me, I, I love seeing Bernie out there pounding on the podium. You know, he's in his mid-70s and he's throwing himself into it. And like, what, what could be better than that? You're that age and you're throwing your entire passion into your everyday you can't you can't beat that, but to me there's like a there's a difference between having Muhammad Ali as a hero and to having Bernie Sanders as a hero. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people well, will I, know call him. I mean,
1: there's a difference in stakes, right? And I think that uh, who was it, um, Customato. I want to say it was Customato, famous trainer of Mike Tyson, starting in the Catskill days, who said, you know, the hero and the coward feel the same thing. The difference is how the hero responds. And I'm paraphrasing, of course. But the fact of the matter is, if, if, and I'm sure some people would disagree on some level, but the stakes of engaging in the theater of politics for an election are very different from Uh, going up against the norms and laws of your country, the stakes are just different. So you have someone who has put their livelihood where their mouth is uh, and reputation where their mouth is to make sacrifices. And I think that engenders a certain type of loyalty and respect that is very hard to mimic in the sort of charade of politics as we see. Uh, a lot of it play out. But I would say that I don't think it's... If there is a problem of, of heroes, related to heroes among, say, younger generations right now, I don't think that it's because there is a lack of heroes. I think it's because there is so much noise that one needs to sift through to find the signal that is a hero they can believe in, if that makes any sense. Instead of having four channels... You have an infinite number of channels in the form of websites and feeds and apps and push notifications and so on. So it becomes more of a sort of cognitive burden and uh, time-consuming task to find someone that one can sort of dedicate their admiration to. Does that make any sense? There are a few mm-hmm. exceptions, though. I would say that, as you said, we, we didn't have all of the details when he was the greatest much like all of this certainly came up at the time for the nature of, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King jr. The adultery. I mean, these are people are flawed human beings right there. They make mistakes. Uh, they make bad decisions, but in today's environment that gets showcased and put into a permanent record that comes up as a top five Google result for your name. And so it's, I think it's more challenging to have heroes now because they are more clearly human as a result of the the abundance of information available. But I, I do think there are some, out uh, Elon Musk. I think is very inspiring. Uh, has made great decisions. Has all of the flaws that human beings do, of course. But I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. I, I think that uh, uh, there are very few Muhammad Ali's period in the world. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah. What I realize, I mean, a lot of this is the time, as you're saying, because, like, when you look at what Elon Musk is doing and the grandiosity of his vision, and then also to have, like, failed, failed, and then put the craft in the air. Uh, so, you, you see, yeah. This is a big timer. And yet, if you were in South Dakota at a movie theater, and Elon Musk was 10 people in front of you online to get in, how many people would know who he was?
1: <laughs> no, I just knew where you were going. I mean, he is sort of unassuming compared to a heavyweight champion of the world, right? Yeah, but to my mind, when you think of a hero, yeah.
0: it's, th- this is what I'm trying to grapple with, this question. Like it has the hero changed now so that Elon Musk is the hero now, but to think of him in the way I think of Ali is, is foolish mm-hmm. because everything's changed.
1: Yeah. It's entirely possible. I want to actually ask a couple of questions that were sitting on my mind during your story. So the first is, do you remember the flavor of ice cream that you had? Vanilla. Vanilla, just straight vanilla. vanilla, straight vanilla. No, uh, no decoration on the, on the vanilla? Yeah, uh, just, just vanilla ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you end up opening and or closing the piece that you wrote, if you remember?
0: Yeah, it's uh, interesting because one of the difficulties that, that you have when, <laughs> and it always happens, like you're a writer and they say okay you got 1500 words and then you start writing and then there are like 2500 (laughs) words on your page and you know that only 1500 are going to fit in the magazine they've basically pulled this thing away from the presses and there's a certain amount of pages and so there's no extra room for you they said the editor said this is what i can give you and it is giving you opportunity to make the most out of it. And of course you want to make it even better than that somehow. And so you go overboard and you, you write a thousand extra words and then you have to look at it, have an editor look at it and say, okay, what's the 1500 words that we really want here. And the interesting thing about this piece was exactly what I was just talking about there was everything that I had seen in the past. And then there were these questions of where does this put the future? But at the time, it really was an obituary. And so it really was a look back. And so the thousand words that got cut were the thousand words that were looking ahead. And it basically ended with this point that you're just never, we're never going to see this again, ever. It's it's past we don't know where it's going maybe it is going to the elon musks of the world and people will just have a different definition than
1: i did possible or if you look at just a broader time scale right i mean how many genghis khans are running around not that many right and uh, if if you look at it in a broader thousand year increment maybe we're just in a lull period between heroes Hmm. Uh, that's that's interesting point i guess we're so we're we're accustomed to we we want these we want heroes we need heroes i think human beings need heroes i think we're hardwired to search for heroes and we find them in real life we find them in mythology we find them in religion or we find them somewhere else i think that we are by nature very hierarchical animals and um there's a, there's a very interesting book called chimpanzee politics for people who are very interested in looking at the sort of reality of our evolutionary, uh, biology. Uh, I think we look for rulers and heroes and it's an important signpost for the mammals we've evolved to be. But, uh, do you recall any of the other pieces of wisdom on that paper?
0: There were, there were a lot that ran in this, what I've learned that I really liked. My favorite was, uh, the best way to make your dreams come true is to wake up. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, silence is golden when you can't think of a good answer. The sun is always shining someplace. I remember asking him about his definition of evil, and he said, unfriendliness. I, I, I thought that was a really good answer. The more we help others, the more we help ourselves. What you're thinking about, you are becoming. Oh, how about this for a kicker? When you're right, nobody remembers.
1: When you're wrong, nobody forgets. Dot, 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 especially with the internet.
0: Uh, Looking back, I think it it captured the experience that I I spent with him. So there were two stories. One was the cover story uh, that came out on the 70th anniversary of Esquire Uh, in 2003. And then in January or four, the, what I've learned came out. Uh, And I think it, it, both stories captured the essence of what I wanted to bring out, which uh, on, on top of that, I should point out for me, the best part of the experience was spending a week with my childhood hero. And then at the end of it, liking him even more than I did before I met him. Uh, he was even more heroic to me for that reason, once I knew him. Uh, just seeing the, the kindness. I, I saw, there was this great obit in Time Magazine, written by a guy named Bob Lipsight, who was the New York Times columnist for many years, and spent 50 years with Ali. And they did a, a, a book in Time Magazine that was filled with uh, Lipside's story and, and photos. And the story starts in an interesting way. Uh, he and Ali are going through an airport. They're late for the plane, and Lipside doesn't think they're going to make it. And as they're moving through the airport, a woman appears and notices Ali and pulls out her camera like, to get a picture. And Ali stops, goes over to the woman and makes sure that she has the picture that she wants. And Lipside is thinking, look, the, the plane's going to leave. What? And Ali said to him, that was the only time that woman was going to have a chance to have her picture taken with me. I wanted to make sure she got the best picture. We... I don't know that there are many people who are thinking that way. And obviously part of it gave him internal satisfaction, but he really was thinking a lot about everyone around him.
1: Who are other people, heroes or just well-known folks who've exceeded your
0: expectations? Well, I have breakfast every morning with Larry King. And so I mean, I see him when we're in town together at the same time, probably 300 days a year. And so he was, if if you're an interviewer, it's very likely you're going to really look up to him. And I've been, I've formed a very close friendship with him. And so that's something I never could have anticipated. And it's like beyond you know, what he accomplished in a career. It's now, it's, it's about friendship. And so it has gone w- way beyond that sense of a hero from afar. Um, and and, and in, in fact, like we, I, I helped him write a book and uh, he inscribed it to me, to me saying, like to Cal, my friend, my writer, my hero, so when when your hero calls you he was joking but still he wrote it on the page it's still 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 on the page it still counts but that that's emblematic that he would that he would write that to me tells you about him tells you about the kindness and the friendship underneath it so that's probably my best
1: answer to the question I have some requests from fans, or I should say listeners, who had a lot of follow-up questions for you. And of course, we'll have to pick and choose. But uh, this is from Osro Hepworth. Ask him if he'll talk about the time in Brazil he used a camera under his shirt as a fake gun to scare off some guys. Is that a real thing?
0: How did he know?
1: <laughs> He said, I heard the story from someone who knows him pretty well. Would love to hear about it via Cal Fussman's storytelling style.
0: Oh, man. Wow. So, let's see. My fans are everywhere, man. <laughs> Eyes and ears in this, all corners. This, you know what? That's pretty impressive. Okay. Now, this is uh, early, I believe, 1994, February. Carnival. Rio de Janeiro. Carnival. <laughs> And my wife is Brazilian. I met her, uh, headed to a beach uh, near the equator, uh, eight years before this carnival,
1: the bus story that we talked about in part one.
0: Right. And so we get a chance to go back to carnival where we're going to dance in the Samba parade and spangles and feathers at three in the morning and you know in front of the huge crowds and it's it's like a fantasy
1: <laughs> custom thong for yourself i'm, I'm assuming
0: uh <laughs> well everybody when you join a samba school they call them samba schools uh like, like various neighborhoods all like band together and they compete against each other So when an outsider comes in, you go to one of the Samba schools and you wear their regalia. Mm -hmm. So, but it's all spangles and feathers, no matter what. (laughs) And, you know, when it comes to the beautiful women, there's not too many spangles and feathers to be seen. It's just the beautiful women. Yeah. So... As it, it, it's this is a this is a wonderful experience. Now, and my wife couldn't resist. She always wanted to dance in, in the Samba school. And she is she was five months pregnant at the time, so it's probably not the best of times for her to be uh, flying halfway around the
1: world
0: and dancing
1: at three in the morning. with up on some float potentially, who knows?
0: Yeah, we didn't, we weren't on the float. We were following the floats and I had a great time. It was a blast. And the, the thing about the way I traveled was I always liked to like live like with the people. And so uh, the people that, we, that brought us into the, this summer school uh, lived in a favela which is in the mountains overlooking the city
1: very poor typically cobbled together electricity oftentimes if you haven't seen city uh, city of god right ciudad de dios i think it is check it out that'll give you a pretty good glimpse
0: and and some of them some of the favelas aren't are actually there are like decent places to live it's not all like you are li- that you're living on a dirt floor right and then the people figure out how to cobble electricity, and and and, and this area wasn't in a, like an intensely poor area, but I, like it's dangerous to to be moving around on the streets. But look, we were in a group of people from this area, and so I, like I felt com- completely safe because when you're with the people you're with the people safety in numbers with the locals the locals exactly and so we go through the dance it's a really great time the music the crowd and this the sheer pageantry of the whole thing and we're starting to walk back home it's like three or four in the morning now right around that time we had heard of I hope I'm pronouncing it right, but it's it's been a while now. Uh the the word was ahastão, which was uh what would happen is there are a lot of like bridges in in Rio that like people can walk over. And what like young tufts and, and like thugs would do was they would like line both sides of the bridge and just be like looking over the water casually uh, and waiting for appropriate moment where everybody would just like attack somebody or a group of people to either like steal something or you you can get beat up like not stuff that wasn't so good is going to happen to you and and so we like we heard about this we we knew it was kind of a, a dangerous time and we were Staying in a place that while it was not dangerous on that street, we were still walking through dangerous places to get there. And so it's really early in the morning and we're walking across this bridge. And, and my wife is Brazilian and she looks Brazilian. And I do not look Brazilian. I'm like a gringo. <laughs> you know, it's the middle, it's the middle of February and I've been, at, at that point, I'm back in New York. It's winter. I'm like, I'm looking really white. Ghostly. Uh, I wouldn't say ghostly. <laughs> Man, come on, Tim, give me a break. Just trying to expand my adjectives. Sorry. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know, I know that, okay, if they're going to be looking to get somebody, they're coming after me. <laughs> right, right, Okay, so um, we're all walking, and now I'm like seeing... This, these lines of people on the side and I could see that they're like looking over at us and I I, I immediately know this, this is not good because we're in the middle of like a fairly long bridge and we've got like a half a mile to get to the other side where like, at least you could run or do something. There's nowhere for us to go except over the side and, you know, take a long tumble into the water.
1: So... It's it's like an Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom situation. I,
0: it, it was it was really scary uh, because uh, and it, it it's interesting because when I think back on it, like I have some measure of pride uh, because there are just some certain moments where you know, okay, bad shit's going to happen. What am I going to do? And and you have no time to think. So I immediately say to my wife, who's really understands what's going to happen, even far better than me. I say, you stay like toward the middle, but away, get away from me. Cause I know they're coming after me. And I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. I may get thrown off. (laughs) I may get thrown off the side. I may get pummeled. Who, Who is to know? But I'm just thinking if I can like, have them all turn on me, then my wife and my kid are going to be able to get away. And so I move away and she is uh, like really nervous. And I just said, walk as fast as you can to get to the other side. I'm going to slow it down and have that focus on me. In the meantime, One of the guys that was in our neighborhood, Toko, God bless him, he has stopped to take a piss under the bridge. This piss saved my life because what happened was after he was done, he came back up to the bridge and then he saw from behind what was going to happen. And he just came running like shouted to a few people and went running and like literally as everybody was about to turn on me I'm sitting there thinking and the other thing about it I should point out this is right after I fought Julio Cesar Chavez so I'm also like in the back of my mind saying well the first guy like I can hit him maybe if he goes down maybe it'll it'll stop things for a second or maybe they're all just going to move me down. Uh, but there's a lot of men like looking and they're coming after me.
1: No, no shortage of firearms in Brazil either.
0: Well, you know what? I don't even think it was a matter. It was a matter of that because the, the setup was you did like you didn't need it. Right. You, all you had to do was just get 50 people to line up the side of a bridge and then wait for a moment of attack. And then attack. Right. What could people... And
1: like, you know, a gringo tourist dressed in spangles
0: and feathers, what's he <laughs> going to do? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I'm just... Sorry. Just the sheer shock of some gringo in spangles and feathers knocking out the first guy would have been <laughs> quite something. But please continue.
0: Okay. So at this point, I there's two, two thoughts. First thought is like, this, this could be it for me, but at least my wife and my son can get out of here. So... Now, I've slowed it down. I'm seeing she's, getting, she's moving really fast away. Oh, okay, now I'm waiting for the onslaught. In the meantime, Toko sees what's going on, calls a few of his friends, and he just sprints with his hand inside his shirt. And he and his buddies, they literally like surround me, and they, they just stop the group. And it, it, like, he's a guy's like looking like he's Al Capone, you know, like, Hey, I got some serious five power here. You, like, I'm going to mow you all down if you don't leave him alone. He's with us. And then there's this like f- fear among the crowd because Toko we, we don't know what Toko's got under there, but he's got something. And. Toko says you just like back off let us get to the other side of the bridge we're not gonna have any problems otherwise there's gonna be a lot of problems and these, these guys like just everybody's staring at what's inside Toko's uh, like shirt and so the others just remain still while I get to the other side and like I'm walking straight, but Toko and the others are like walking backward, making sure that nobody's <laughs> with, with his hand in his shirt the whole time. And we get to the other side and I say, oh, my man, I didn't know you took a gun. And he pulled out a camera.
1: <laughs> oh, man, what a bluff.
0: Yeah. And uh, I, I owe my life to him and, and that uh, quick bathroom
1: stop and the camera.
0: How did people hear this story?
1: I have no idea. You can ask uh, Osro. <laughs> At Osro Hepworth can tell you more. I'm sure you might be listening, Osro, so let Cal know. Uh, one more, and then perhaps we'll have it to be continued. It's from a friend of mine, actually, a chef. Ask about, about his acceptance speech, speech for the JBF. Uh,
0: At the James Beard the Foundation. Yeah. Well, that that was something that... I didn't ex- expect, man, it's amazing. People, it's like the Oscars for,
1: for yeah, food.
0: Yeah, it's like the Oscars for food. And it was in a beautiful setting with thousands of people in New York. And the thing about the James Beard Award is there are a lot of awards given out during these ceremonies. And so, like in the beginning, people are paying attention. But then you you've get everybody coming up and you're warned. You got three minutes. You win an award, like no more than a hundred eighty seconds up behind the mic, cause and everybody knows there are a lot of awards. And if people talk for twenty minutes, yeah. you, you're not gonna get out of there to four four in the morning. So you're you're told three minutes. That's it. And as the evening is going, and more and more awards and people are going up. And like, I I don't want to make fun of it, but when you get people's st- Getting up and saying, you know, I'd, I'd really like to thank Aunt Penelope for showing me how to skin a cucumber, uh, and like it's over and over <laughs> and over and
1: over and over again, a thousand variations of Aunt Penelope. Yeah,
0: there's <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and so uh, naturally the crowd's attention is going to start to drift away, and then once it starts to drift, it it just it's not coming back, Un- unless like Ted Allen gets an award. Like the well-known TV food personality, people will oh, there's Ted Allen, and there'll, there'll be a silence. But if if you're going through categories where only a few people know the person who's just won, it, it, it thing is just going on and on and on. And now the whole the whole crowd is having a good time at their table, and everybody's talking, having a great time. But nobody's paying attention to Aunt Penelope no more. So here it is. I've just written a story that took me 10 years to write about being the sommelier at Windows in the World at the top of the World Trade Center just before the planes hit and the Twin Towers go down. And it it takes me 10 years to be able to write this story. I was so traumatized. And so I've got... and I, I win the award for like best essay. So the award is called, I hear my name and I go up to the stage to give my speech. And I look out and there's like, nobody is paying attention. It must be like three or 4,000 people there in this grand setting, nobody. Having a thousand conversations. That's right. And like this, I cannot describe all of the pain that I had to go through to get this piece out of me, and here I am, like you, you get your medal and then you're going up to speak, and I'm looking out at this crowd, and I can't speak into that crowd because I feel like I've got something important to say. It goes back to nine one one and and there's nobody out there listening that I, that I can see so I just get behind the podium and I don't say anything. (laughs) And like 15 seconds pass, 30 seconds pass. It was a woman over on the side, the one who's saying, three minutes, three minutes, three minutes. I've just gone like 30 seconds. I haven't said a word. (laughs) 45 seconds, a minute. Now you can start to see. Some people are saying, like, what, what's going on? Why, why is he that? talking about his Aunt Penelope? <laughs> <laughs> and then after, it must have been a minute, maybe a minute and a half, Ted Allen, like, stands up and, like, throws his arm in the crowd, throws his arm up <laughs> and like, like, no, like, Cal must speak. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say that, but something <laughs> like that. And a hush, like, comes over the crowd, and then I still, I said, I am not going to say a word until there is, like, complete silence in this place, and I just wait, and I wait, and I went, like, my three minutes is all up, you know, now it's, like, people all around with their arms up, saying, let him speak, let him speak, and then I spoke, and the beauty of the experience, because I, I, I'm only now understanding that speaking was something that I was born to do. Like, it, when I look back on those moments, like that moment tells me, yeah, you were born to do this because afterward, like a chef like Paul Bartolotta, uh, who has a gr- great Italian restaurant, had it at the win uh, for many years, uh, has won James Beard awards for himself, came over to me and he just said, you took back the crowd. And at the time, it didn't, it, it made no, I, I didn't understand it. But now that I'm starting to give speeches, now it makes sense. Yeah, I, I do I do have this and it's, I have to use it. It would be terrible for me not to use it. I'm supposed to use it. And that was only like a flicker. And it's still, it it was about five years after that before I started talking, but it was there. Some more questions when we uh, get back from festivities. A hundred percent. You know, we could spend all tomorrow talking if you want. I, you know, I'm, I, got, uh, I got this guy who's like managing me now. Kevin, the manager. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, Cal, you go, you go on, you do these three and a half hour podcasts, like three and a half hours. Do you realize how long that is? And then I said to him, Kevin, it was fun. <laughs> Why wouldn't I? <laughs> so we can talk all tomorrow
1: alright fantastic and we have more barrel sauna use which I'll fill people in on perhaps one of my, my newest newest distractions slash saviors but uh, to be continued so uh, this is great fun and we will, we will continue alright this is, is round two picking up in the AM we have two mugs full of yerba mate tea and I thought we some questions from listeners and one that we can start with is nick simon which interview in his career went worst and discussed the aftermath
0: okay there's a good story of that one i don't know if many people remember a guy named william buckley he was an incredible intellect uh, who was at the foundation of the conservative party but he had a tv show Uh, back in the 60s, that was just fantastic. And this guy had an amazing intellect and a vocabulary that you'd only dream of. And I don't know why, but he was the only person I have ever been frightened to interview. Just because, well, I'll I'll tell you why. Uh, Back in, in, in the 60s, he challenged Robert... Kennedy to a debate on TV, on a show and Robert Kennedy wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> and so Buckley comes on the next show and, and he spoke in this kind of effete way, way. And, and he basically says, well, you know, I invited Robert Kennedy to come and debate me. He has refused. This is clearly a case of the baloney rejecting the grinder. <laughs> what a line, wow. I, and that was, he was like that all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he could take you apart if he wanted to, yeah. just with the magnificence of his language. And I don't know what it was, but I was really scared. I, look, the guy, he was way older than me. He had seen much more than me. How
1: old were you at the time? Oh, let's see. Just roughly.
0: Uh, probably, oh, was that late thirties, early forties? Okay. Okay. Got it.
1: So not totally green. No, I no. That's,
0: young. that's the point. Yeah. That's the point. I had no reason to fear him. Yeah. I know I've already done like many, what I've learned interviews. I'd already met a lot of famous people, people who have done big things, but I was just scared. And so, I said to myself, you you really gotta be prepared for this interview, like no other interview before. And so I did all my research. I read and read and read and I watched what I could of him. And
1: for two days before the interview, I stopped eating. <laughs> <laughs> now, was this part of your performance enhancement plan or is that just nerves? I just wanted to be laser focused when I walked oh, in there. Like a hawk. That's right. <laughs> or a hunting like a falcon that they'll starve to make them, their senses more acute. Okay. That's, that's exactly it. I wanted my senses to
0: be laser focused when I walked in there. There was no way that this guy Ooh, was, was going to throw you off. <laughs> so I'm outside of his apartment in, in New York, Like a half an hour early, I'm just pacing back and forth. (laughs) Like, there's no no way he's gonna take you apart. You're gonna stay with him, Cal. You're gonna, you. This guy is amazing, but you're gonna stay with him. Finally, the appointed hour arrives. It's like eleven in the morning. Go and knock on his door. The door swings open, and he throws his arms out wide, and he says. Welcome to my home. And then he starts rubbing his hands together and he says, with a big smile on his face, a little scotch? (laughs) Now, Now I'm screwed. Now I'm screwed. Because when I traveled around the world, if you offered me something to eat or something to drink, I drank it or I ate it. I mean, like I did some crazy stuff. I remember going to the Nile uh, for the first time and just walking up and drinking out of it, just to say, okay, I'm at one with you here. And you know, the next <laughs> three days, I couldn't leave my hotel room. I was over the toilet, uh, but that was my mentality. I, If you serve it, I have ultimate respect. I will, I will eat it or drink it. And so now he's saying, Have this scotch. And I know if I put this scotch to my lips within 20 minutes, I'm going to be like slurring my words out of it because my, I'm just too clean for it. <laughs> right. And so I looked at him and I said, God, I just, it, I, I regret it. It, it. it gives me shivers just to repeat it. I said, How about a little water? (laughs) And he looks at me and his nose goes up in the air. And he says, oh. And in that oh was, it's going to be that kind of interview, is it? And the interview was done. It was just, I had not respected him. And look, my my whole way of interviewing is I'm going to make you feel like you're at home. So here is a guy who opened the door to his home, threw out his arms to embrace me, offered me, who who knows, probably, you know, 50-year-old single malt. (laughs) And I just said, no, I couldn't even make him feel at home in his home. (laughs) And we sit down. And in, in fairness to myself, when I went back and listened to the interview, it, it wasn't that
1: bad, but it could have been great. Right. You know how much better it could have been.
0: Yeah, because I just set the thing, I, I just set it off on such a wrong note and it ended way earlier than it should have ended. And I walked away as saying you will never ever do that again. Like <laughs> that, that is a mistake you never should have made. And I hope you learn your lesson. So what happens, the aftermath is a good part of that question because, okay, I'm getting ready to hand the piece in and I'm just making it work. It's like, it's one of those, if, if you're a pole vault and you're just getting over the bar, I, <laughs> I ba- barely clearing it. Yeah. And and it's like shaking, like you've nicked it <laughs> and it's shaking. But, but I feel as I'm about to hand it in that it's still, it's still there and I'm coming down and I'm going to have soft landing here. So, and I get a phone call and it's a uh, bad news, Cal, bad news from the editor. What What's going on? Well, William Buckley had written a piece for Esquire, like, 30 or 40 years ago. And there was some problems with it. And a legal agreement was made between William Buckley and Esquire that that piece would never again run. It would never be republished. And Esquire had just put out a huge book of great stories. Oh, including his piece. Because what happened is there have been maybe eight editors in between the time that happened. Oh, too many regime changes. Yeah, and nobody knew about this. Only Buckley and his lawyers knew. And they basically said, hey, get that book off the racks. You can't do this. And so they said, there's just no way we can run the interview.
1: Oh, man.
0: I got a reprieve. You got a reprieve. I got a reprieve. Got a pardon at the last minute. That's right. I got a last minute pardon and the lesson was the truly important thing because i will never ever go into an interview like nervous because it serves no purpose it only hurts you
1: so were there points in the future when you felt the involuntary nerves kicking in and if so what would you say to yourself
0: no, because the, the experience like <laughs> scarred me. Remember the scotch. <laughs> and, you know, like now, like I'll take ice cream
1: into interviews. Yeah. Uh, so you skipped the, the Pellegrino Falcon prep after yeah, that? Yeah, ne- never. Look, do the prep. Not the prep, but I mean the, the, the fasting approach.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's just, it's just ridiculous because if you're... If you're going intense, you're going to transmit that tenseness into the interview and into the person, to the subject. Now, look, there's a lot of interviewers who do things different ways. I just did a piece with uh, Jorge Ramos, the Univision anchor who True. Donald Trump pitched out of the interview in uh, Iowa a while back. And his he has like a completely different approach. He he goes into the interview as if it's a war uh, because a lot of the people that he's interviewing uh, could have been dictators or people who, uh, like presidents who took power in unscrupulous ways. And he knows he's he may only have like a few minutes. He may be getting thrown out. So he's going to come at them with like the toughest question right hook at the start. Right yeah. the
1: bell of the first round. That's
0: right. Uh, yeah. And and he he's had a great career out of it. And but he, look, his background was completely different from mine because he grew up in Mexico where basically the media was censored. So he was a reaction to that. And everything he does is a reaction to censorship. It's a reaction to people having power and taking advantage of those who don't have it. And he sees journalism as more than just asking a question. He sees it as like defending people. Right. And I really don't go into an interview to, to defend anybody. And in fact, it's, it's kind of interesting because. Uh, Like some people say, well, what what happens when you get people who lie to you? And I "I said, the way I write, it's impossible for somebody to lie to me because I write in other people's words. So if they lie to me, their lie is going to be printed on the page exactly the way they told it. And so basically the truth is they're a liar. Because anybody who knows the truth is going to know that they lied. Mm -hmm. So very, very different styles.
1: Very different styles. So we were talking yesterday about some prep that I was doing for an interview where I wanted to watch a movie. And uh, we we ended up watching a good part of it together. uh, But I was nervous that I wouldn't have the chance to see it beforehand due to some technological issues. And uh, so you mentioned that, for instance, Larry King doesn't want to know anything about, and feel free to, to add to this, say a given movie that's coming out that a guest is a part of because he wants to, I suppose, see it with fresh eyes and ask the questions that a a, a beginner might ask or someone who's unfamiliar with it. How does your style differ from, say, Larry's? Because, of course, you spend a lot of time with Larry.
0: Yeah. And Larry's basic idea is i am thinking like the person who's listening they haven't seen the movie they haven't gotten a chance to get a preview so why should i larry king be in the position to tell them what happens better f- for him to put oh there's molly there's got molly her.
1: molly's molly's awake now guys she was sedated yesterday but she's she's full of beans today I will close that door if she continues her home defense against <laughs> squirrels and butterflies. <laughs> Sorry, Cal.
0: Uh, so, so Larry's basic feeling is, hey, I am, I am going to talk to this person who made the movie or was in the movie or who wrote the book as if I just sat next to him on an airplane seat. Oh, you wrote that book? What's it about? And then let the conversation go from there. And that, that's a great strategy uh, because it'll, it's very natural and it allows the person to be just as natural. Uh, I've gone both ways. In fact, there's, I don't really follow pop culture that much. And certainly uh, when I moved out to Los Angeles in a way, rarely followed it before then. Once you're in L.A., it's hard to not be part of the pop culture because it's, it's all around you. And so what Esquire, as soon as I moved out there, they, they came up with a pretty funny idea, uh, knowing that I don't, didn't know much about the current movies. And they hatched a plan to send me out to do a, a cover story. Uh, but the only thing they told me was, well, we just want you to go out and do a story about a guy. His name is Jerry. And, and I said, well, what else? That's it. It's just his name is Jerry. And they gave me his address. <laughs> <laughs> Such a setup. <laughs> and, and not on that, but they told me, look, it's just a short interview. Don't. Don't sweat it. it just his name's Jerry. Just go out and talk to him for a few minutes and come back and write something up. So it seemed it didn't seem like a big trick to me. In the meantime, Gerard Butler, the actor, is waiting in his house. And he's like appeared in a, f- a few movies at this point, one of which was uh, 300. Another one was Phantom of the Opera. I hadn't seen either of those movies. And I had no idea who he was. And he is sitting at home getting his first cover story (laughs) for Esquire. He's consented to a three hour interview. (laughs) A few minutes. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going in a few minutes for Jerry and he's thinking, okay, cover story Esquire. And so I knock on the door and (laughs) I you know, Hey, is Jerry here? (laughs) And then I said, well, you know, I, I, to be honest, the, I have no idea who you are, but the magazine has sent me to interview you for a few minutes. And he's looking at me, and he's like, his eyes are like squinting, like, this guy's putting me on. This guy's putting me on. And I said, no, 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 no. Really, I have no, I have no idea who you are. And then, like, he, he's caught between the squinting of the eyes and then, like there's a smile on his face because he like he's an actor who can go with it, and so he he wants to go with it, but he's wary, yeah you know, this understandable this, yeah, this is the setup, this is the setup, and he keeps looking for that little string to pull that's going to take the garment and just unravel it and prove that I'm an imposter, but there's nothing he can do. Cause I have no idea who this guy is. And so instead of saying, what do you do? I just acted like I had met him I, and I said to him, you know, the, the good thing about this is for 10 years I traveled around the world and I would just get on trains and sit next to people and we just go and get a chance to meet each other. So why don't we just approach it like that? And so he's, Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) And I said, like, where are you from? (laughs) And Just that question. Like, I don't believe you. I don't believe it. I don't believe this. And then he starts telling me he's from, Paisley in Scotland, and I, I, and I think I, I, at first I couldn't tell if it was like, "Is it Australia, is it England, is it Scotland?" yeah, the yeah. and then I said, "Scotland, and he, said, yeah, 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 And then he starts giving me his background, and it's only about 20 minutes into the interview where it comes out, and then like I started to act, and I said, "Oh, you're an actor." <laughs> And he says, Oh, this is just the biggest bunch of malarkey. Like, I know you're a film buff. This whole thing is being <laughs> recorded to put me on. I know, dude. No, I have no idea who you are. And now, the rest of this interview, he's like trying to prove to me that he is like a world class actor.
1: <laughs> God, the poor guy.
0: And the, the amazing thing about it was like, we're talking, we're talking. I still it hasn't occurred to me that this is a cover story. I still think this is-
1: A, a little interview, a few minutes with Jerry.
0: Yeah. And so at a certain point, we, we take a little break and he says, you need to use the bathroom, like you use the one off my bedroom. Here, I'll show you. And we start walking into his room, to the bedroom, and there is an Esquire on a nightstand and it's got Megan Fox, the actress actress on the cover and he makes this offhanded comment like geez like why would they want to put me on the cover of Esquire when you can have Megan Fox and then it hits like oh my god I gotta write a cover story about this oh no so we step back down and I say all right Jerry like Let's shift, gears let's shift gears here what movies were you in and he he's like really really and he said he brings up he says well this was the, this was the topper he says i was in 300 and i, and I, I haven't seen it and, and he I said 300 300 you know i saw i remember Sam, I think I saw a poster of that movie. It was like, it was like these like kind of gladiator guys, and it was this, I remember a beard. And Jerry says, that, that was me! That was me! <laughs> and and we, we're talking about 300, and he said, and in this issue with Megan Fox on the cover, it also had a story, the 75 movies that every man must see and so he says, "Like I'll show you," and he picks up this issue and he says, "I guarantee you, three hundred is one of the seventy-five movies that every man must see." I'll show you. He opens up to the story. He goes on page one. He's looking at these movies. These movies pretty good. Gets to page two. Yeah, it is really good. He's not seeing three hundred. Turns the page and he's fuckers. Turns the next page. Fuck. <laughs> like, <"Fuck!" laughs> and he gets to the last page it's not there oh, and it's God. like fuck how could they not put 300 in here and i'm i'm saying okay okay like what else are we in he said phantom of the out come on joe you can't sing like that like i saw that broadway show i got roped into it i got, i don't like musicals but my, my wife does and so we went you, like, you can't sing like that. I, I was the phantom. And, and so the whole interview is going on where he's trying to prove to me that he's an actor and belongs on the cover of Esquire. And we have a great time. And, and true to the actual beginning of the interview, where I said to him, "Look, I I sit down on trains next to people, and like they take me home at the end of the interview." He's saying, "Hey, you want to use my big screen? Come come back any time." are like we're tight. It's it's been a great time, and it, it, I'm getting ready to leave, and he disappears, and and right before I leave, the house fills with music from Fan of the Opera. <laughs> <laughs> and he comes down and he starts singing note for note to the music. And I said, okay, Jerry, I know who you are. Wow. So there, there was a case where I had no, not a clue,
1: not a clue uh, who I was interviewing and it, and it works just and it being works. natural, yeah. Well, that would work for you also, not for all interviewers, right? given your background in the same way that perhaps if you went into a war conflict interview format where you had 3 minutes to hit someone with a left hook you might not be as adaptable as the Univision interviewer right i mean like the the that format the uh stranger on the train scenario is something you've you're you're very well adapted to take advantage of
0: yeah you know it's interesting jorge ramos was telling me a story the only time that he actually like got thrown out of an interview or pushed away before donald trump was uh with fidel castro and it was a very tricky situation he was in and castro knew it castro knew who he was and and so they're they're at a conference and Jorge manages to get next to Castro, and he's got his mic, and he starts asking him questions. And what Castro did was put his arm around Jorge.
1: Uh, for photos and whatnot? Uh,
0: because the, the camera's in on this, and so the look now is that they're pals. Yeah. Which, if you're Jorge... You do not want to be seen as pals with...
1: That's clever, though, on the part of Fidel.
0: Right. And so Jorge has got to come back at him and manage to, like, (laughs) wriggle away. (laughs) Wriggle
1: away like a toddler.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wriggle away and then hit him with with a tough question. And at which point one of Castro's bodyguards, like, elbowed him away and, like, out. This this is over. I'm like, I never have to... think like that because my my feeling is if somebody is going to feel comfortable with me then i'll get to the deep eternal truths and i don't i don't want to push them back or off guard or make them nervous or make them think about what they have to say so it's completely different different styles hence the scotch rule Hence the yeah, hence the Scotch rule.
1: <laughs> now there are for people who are wondering, and a lot there are many questions that popped up about questions since that's what many people associate you with, good questions. And I feel like I should mention that there are very contrasting styles, even uh, uh, very different from both Larry's approach, your approach, and Jorge Ramos's approach, such as James Lipton. Inside the Actor's Studio, he, and I've, I've spent time with some of his researchers who have, I've paid to look at past transcripts of my podcast to try to help me improve, but the format's completely different because in the case of, say, James Lipton, he, I believe, knows the answer to every question he's going to ask. So there's a tremendous amount of in-depth research and prep that goes into it, and For me personally, it really kind of depends on the guest and the circumstances. Some are really, really deeply researched, particularly if I'm nervous. And then others, I'm coming in relatively blind because I feel like it's a a complex enough subject that I want to have myself in the shoes of the majority of the people listening, if that makes sense, like physics or mathematics or something like that. Uh, Who are some interviewers that you greatly admire, alive or dead, Besides Larry,
0: well, there are very few good interviewers that I don't admire. Uh, but it, it, the, this conversation is kind of explaining it all. They're all like completely different, so that when I when I look at them, like I see what they're doing, I see how they're doing it. I like I admire Barbara Walters. And I, I know that like she has scripted her interviews a little different from Lipton because she doesn't know what's coming, but she's got question number one, question number two, question number three. She, like She's storyboarded. Right. There's a progression. There's her, an arc. Her interviews from start to finish and meticulously. And I can see how it, she makes it work for her. Charlie Rose, um, um, the the research that he does is absolutely fantastic. And the interesting thing about Charlie Rose is when he's interviewing somebody, you you think like he's on almost an equal level of of intelligence or material as a person that he's interviewing. And like that works, that works great for him. Uh, Matt Lauer is like a master at getting people to feel comfortable. And and I know where this comes from because I interviewed him. And when he was a kid, he worked in a men's shop. And he said, when you're a salesman, you have to observe the person coming in through the door and see what they're looking at, what's the right time to approach when is it time to back off? And all that translated into his interviews. And you can see why it makes people feel so comfortable. Came from that clothing store. And so...
1: Same story and uh, different background with Barbara Walters, right? And you were mentioning this to me yesterday. If you could if you'd elaborate on that for a second also, just as, the, the, as another example of how the background forms the interviewer.
0: Yeah, the with Barbara Walters, her dad owned a famous nightclub in New York called the Latin Quarter. And so all the famous celebrities were in this place night after night. And she was sitting and talking with them as if they were friends. And that allowed her later on in life to have that same vibe in her Conversations with people while she interviewed them, because she was just accustomed to sitting next to them and and casually talking to them. If you don't have that experience, you you might be put off. You might be a little nervous, and that might be something you have to overcome by repeatedly doing it. But probably in her case, the first time she sat in on a celebrity interview, it was not much different from being at her dad's nightclub
1: and for someone who doesn't have because i don't don't want people to get the impression that you have to have this uh extensive childhood experience with something or another to become a good interviewer because i don't i don't think that's the case necessarily maybe i'm missing something in my own background but are there any uh there are a number of questions to this effect (sighs) and (laughs) We've, we've chatted about this a little bit, but for instance, here's a question from uh, David Dronet or Dronette. Uh, what, what are the top three specific questions he asks most often during interviews that he finds are the most revealing? Now, we've, I, I've, I suspect I know what, what uh, part of your answer will be to this, but the two that I would offer for people who are opening an interview and are really nervous, right? So one was, what do you ask? Where are you from? <laughs> just like very simple uh, the other one that seems to buy a lot of time for me in my experience if I just don't know where to go where to start I'll say tell me the story of how you became X right an actor or, or whatever and you've immediately bought yourself probably five minutes of time to figure out what your next move is and you'll get something in the answer that will help you figure out your next move but how would you answer this question because I'm sure you get some variation of this question all the time
0: well, the, the the big thing that I'm noticing from the people who asked this question, because once I started to speak, this question kept coming up again and again. It's like, what's, what's the holy grail of questions here so I could use them? And I always say, it's not like there's a holy grail of questions. I, look, I come prepared. I've got like 200 questions in my mind when I show up for an interview because I've thought about them. I've written them down and then I've ripped them up. The, the thing is, it's not that first question that I'm really dependent on. I, that first question just opening the door. And then the answer is going to spark my second question. And that's going to take me down a flight of steps like deeper into the person's soul. And then when they answer the second question, that's gonna bring up a third question. And by the sixth answer, maybe that's where I wanted to go with my first question. So it's a process. It's not a, use this and you will be (laughs) successful too. It's not an incantation. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it's 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 also filled with curiosity because you what you what you're doing what you're doing is you're just listening to see where the answers take you it's the answers that are going to take you where you want to go the questions are there just to like open the doors for the answers and and so R- relying on one question to get you to the bottom of, of something it, it's something I wouldn't do, but you know what? It might be something that Jorge Ramos, that that's a good question for Jorge Ramos because he's had to think really carefully. If he knows I've only got five minutes with this president of a Latin American country and he's got it ask something that's going to get a response that everybody talks about, he might ask a question like, um, how much did your house cost? (laughs) Yeah. And then if the person, well, I don't know, like, you don't know how much your house costs. Yeah. Well, like
1: any answer is an answer, right? In that case.
0: Yeah. Uh, And I
1: won't answer that is tells, tells you quite a lot, right? I mean, the mask tells you more than,
0: what's exactly. underneath the mask. That's that's what he's working in. He's he's like really thinking hard about what he's going to ask, knowing that he doesn't have much time. Yeah. And also knowing that he's there for the people.
1: Right. This is a this is a point that I think about quite a lot but in the in the converse way, meaning some of my fans, I'll have I'll have guests on who are known or have been known at some point for some type of scandal, or and if you're in the public eye long enough, eventually something's going to come up. I mean, you're going to make a misstep, you're going to say something stupid, and uh, there are some fans, not a lot, but who are like, why didn't you ask him about this? Why didn't you ask her about that? Well, in my case, I do have a lot of time. I have two to three hours to uncover, in, in my particular format, tactics and tools and so on. So if I ask... How much did your house cost? That's the equivalent of not accepting the scotch times a hundred, right? They're just going to, they'll go, Oh, Oh, it's one of these. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And the doors get shut. That's,
0: yeah. And I that's get
1: effectively it. the end of the interview. Even if it lasts another two hours, they will not, they will not give me anything. They wouldn't give a stranger who's potentially hostile. And so it's a completely different, uh, different set of, it's a, it's a different style of interviewing. Um,
0: but you know what? There, the, the way, the way I would approach that is like not with a direct question, but just by allowing the conversation to circle around that area, and invite him or her to explain the scandal through that, and then then you can be into it. Best example I could give you about that. When uh, Larry King was just getting started in Miami on radio, he was sitting at a table with a friend of his at the time, Jackie Gleason, Honeymooners. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so they had become friends, and Jackie had asked this question around the table, uh, like, What's impossible? And I guess there was a doctor at the table that said, "Like, We'll never have artificial blood. And it gets to Larry, and Larry says, What's impossible, I have a three-hour radio show. Uh, Getting Frank Sinatra to appear on my radio show, that's impossible. (laughs) And Jackie Gleason pointed to him and said, you got it. And as it turned out, uh, Frank had been doing a concert and uh, or a series of concerts and lost his voice and needed to be replaced one night And he called Jackie and he said, hey, Jackie, can you go on, do like a comedy bit for me so that nobody's upset? And uh, Frank says, I owe you one. And so after that conversation with with Larry and the others, Jackie calls up Frank and and says, hey, Frank, this is the one. There's this kid, Larry King. He's just starting out in radio, Miami Beach. He's got a three-hour show. I need you to go on for three hours. Frank says, you want it? You got it. Now, nobody can believe. This is like a little radio station.
1: And at the <laughs> time, I am i mean imagining that Sinatra is the, the, the biggest of the big.
0: Yeah. N- not only that, but like Frank, as, as his PR guy points out, that the public relations guy is basically employed to say no to all these requests like this.
1: <laughs> I'm very familiar.
0: And so... <laughs> They call up, the the people at the radio station can't believe it because Larry says, I got Frank Sinatra coming in like Friday night or whatever night it was and the radio wants to do all this publicity and so that they say like, are you sure he's going to (laughs) show? This is a little station. It's not a, Larry King is not big time. This is what made Larry King big time and the radio station is calling over to where Frank is staying, asking just to get a confirmation, no response, no response, no response. Finally, whatever the the show was on at nine o'clock, like at two minutes to nine, Frank comes through the door with his publicist and the publicist pulls Larry aside and says, I don't know how you got this because my job is to not let this happen. (laughs) (laughs) But he said he wants to do it. Okay, I'm just telling you one thing. You Do not ask about the kidnapping of his son. Just don't. And Larry is young and so grateful, after whatever you say, whatever you say. And the interview starts and Larry's like dumbfounded. So he says to Frank to talk about starting an interview. He says to Frank- Where, where are you from? No, no, I'm just kidding. Even better. He says, why are you here? (laughs) (laughs) And Frank explained, and and Larry didn't even know the backstory. Oh, wow. And so Frank is having to explain to him, well, Gleason substituted for me, and I owed him one, and then he said, Frank, this is the one, and so I'm here. And the interview starts going and starts going, an hour passes or whatever, and midway into the interview, Frank is feeling very comfortable. And and Larry says to him, do you feel, Frank, you've ever gotten a bum rap? And Frank says, absolutely. Like in the case of my son getting kidnapped. And then just goes into the whole story. And so Larry didn't ask the question directly. He just made Frank feel at home. So that is more like where I line up as, as a, as opposed to the style of going in there and say, "We got Sinatra. Let's
1: let's see the if corner we, of the Wild beast.
0: Yeah, he's the cameras in front of him. If we ask him about it and he doesn't want to answer, we're still going to get his reaction. I, that I, I don't, I, I don't go that way.
1: It's also a very, in from my perspective, a very mercenary way of doing things in a very transactional way. Uh, contrasted with if if you take the approach that Larry did, he's developing friendships, not just good tape, right? Over time, I mean, he's, yeah, and,
0: and exactly.
1: And I mean, at least I would say a third of the guests that I've had on the podcast came as recommendations from other guests and introductions. Uh, and that wouldn't happen if I had a transactional gotcha type of approach. And just to reiterate what you said, I the exact same experience is something that I've had on at least two dozen of my interviews in the sense that I always ask guests beforehand, because the show is not about making people look bad. It's about tactics and routines and habits and all the stuff that people can use. I'll ask, is there anything you really don't want to talk about or prefer not to talk about? And, uh, not, uh, not often, but every once in a while someone will say, yeah, I really don't want to talk about X. And, if I make them feel comfortable, and if I do one thing, which uh, Neil Strauss, who's a very, uh, very good writer and very accomplished interviewer for Rolling Stone and New York Times, he said to me, "If you want them to be vulnerable, be, be vulnerable yourself. Like give up some details of your life that are very vulnerable." So I made that a habit, and in I'd say half of the cases, they end up talking about exactly the thing they said they didn't want to talk about. They bring it up themselves.
0: It it, it only makes sense because. When people feel comfortable, then they're going to speak normally. Yeah, They're going to forget they're being interviewed. And later on in life, Frank actually wrote Larry uh, a note that in it said, you know, you make the cameras disappear. And I think that's what you, as an interviewer, want to do. You want to make people forget they're being interviewed and just speak with you naturally. Now, that's just my style. Other people, they want it to be known it's an interview. If you show up with a pad in front of you and cameras, then it's an interview. The pad is going to tell the person that is across from you, there are questions written down, this is an interview, be advised. And so I, that's, that's just something I would n- like never, never do, but that's just me, that's just my style.
1: So you mentioned that you think about the questions, write down the questions, then tear them up. I'm, I'm curious about this. So do you review a list of questions and then the day before or before you walk into someone's house, just tear it up into little shreds and throw it in a waste basket? Or how, what does your process look like for adding the ammo to your brain? Yeah, it's it's a
0: matter of you do your research, and then there's a period of curiosity where you're just you've taken in all this information, and now what are you curious about? And so you just start writing down questions, and that comes for me it comes very easy, and I'll just start writing, 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 and then pages will be filled up. The way I look at it, it's, it's almost like I'm putting songs in a jukebox and the the questions are my songs. And I'm just going to have these songs in there. They're in my head. I know the words to the songs. I can sing the songs. Uh, and then I rip them up. Uh, it's more of like a ceremonial act. The, the questions are no longer on paper. They're in my head. And so then I go, when I go into the interview, like interesting things start happening uh, because number one, because all these questions are in my head, I'm never like at a loss for a question. I've I've talked to some writers who say like, what happens when you run out of questions? Well, I I don't because my jukebox is filled. But more than that, what will happen is I'll ask a question and then I'll get a response. And then I'm working off the responses. But oftentimes a response will lead to a question I've already thought of. So it's like they're hitting the jukebox and they're playing the music. They're getting the question that they want because that's where they were going.
1: Right. They used the, the proper cue. Right. In a sense.
0: And so my mind was prepared to ask them the question that they wanted to hear to make them more, more comfortable. So it's, it's, it's a very, it's my style and other people can try it and see if it works for them, but there's something relaxing about it to me and i i can recall like i've interviewed people who like have shows on tv where they have to inter- interview people and i come in without any questions or pad and you could see this like shocked look on their face you you, you don't write down your questions uh because they might feel like what will i do on camera if i don't I can't think of a question that might look bad. Having that pad there is a safety net. Uh, but w- once you do it this way a few times, you're, you're free.
1: Neil does the same thing. Neil Strauss. I don't know if he I don't think he tears uh, them up, but if he, he folds it up, folds it up and put in his, puts it in his pocket and doesn't look at it at all. And I think that if, if I were to underscore something that you both have in common, you're very good at getting people to open up about things they would be disinclined to open up about normally in an interview. And I think that's a big part of it, right? It's like if you have a camera with a flashing red light, people put on their body armor. It's just, and the the more you can make it a conversation as opposed to an interview, like you said, with uh, is if you can remove the symptoms of an interview, so to speak, right? The pad of paper, the flashing lights, the more naturally people will engage with you and the, the more they will share.
0: Well, now you're getting into like Oprah territory where... I mean, imagine this, you've got like the flashing lights, you've got an audience that's reacting, and then you've got a subject on the couch and she is getting them to speak about things that are very intimate <laughs> in front of a crowd and the flashing lights. I mean, that's that's a high, high level of jujitsu.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's amazing. Uh, if you were to ask me what is impossible, my answer currently would be getting Oprah on the podcast, but on my three-hour podcast. So we'll see. We'll see if that manifests something.
0: Uh, I, w- I wish I can say, you got it. You got it. You got
1: it. <laughs> Oprah owes me a solid. And
0: Oprah owes me one. <laughs> no, don't, don't worry about this. <laughs>
1: Uh, this, this may have a good amount of overlap with things we've already talked about, but this is from Devin Hedgepeth, best strategies to get to the heart while interviewing, find
0: out what they love. I mean, it's that simple, especially if you're able to do the research before just hone in on something they're passionate about and they love talking about and just ask them about it and they're going to be happy to talk about it is is, it's very simple and it's the exact opposite of going in uh, feeling like a journalist who is determined to get it like a question answered i i've got to get this i i mean you talked about gotcha but there's like a level underneath that with that's not so much gotcha it's a legitimate okay we we need to know this uh, and if it, it, you go in trying to grab it, if you go in trying to grab something from anyone, they're going to protect it. So just make people relax by finding out what they like and then have them talk about it.
1: And, uh, th- this, this, this is really good advice. Uh, it took me a long time to figure out that, for myself at least, and I'm still very much a novice, but you, you, sometimes the best place to start is really far off of any topic that they've covered in interviews related to their, their profession. I mean, I remember interviewing Edward Norton, and I'd spent a good amount of time with Edward, uh, but uh, the way that he interacts in interviews can be very different than the way he interacts, say, over coffee, having normal conversations. So I wanted to make him feel as relaxed as possible, so we just talked about surfing for the first five to 10 minutes of the interview.
0: Yeah. I remember that.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were sitting out on, I think it was the Malibu pier overlooking the water. We could see the surf line up and I was like, okay, let's talk about surfing.
0: That's just a a clear example of doing something that's very natural and getting somebody to, to feel like at one with you and the place and um, To me, that's making the person, the subject, feel safe and comfortable. That's where it all starts. Uh, It's obviously there's research before and there's the preparation of questions. But if you can't make a person feel safe, forget it. Yeah. Uh, Although, look, that's just me. Jorge Ramos is going in there. He is not making them feel safe. And he he makes it work for him
1: yeah he's he's doing the uh the john snow charging into battle approach
0: yeah and <laughs> and and from where
1: he comes from that's what's necessary oh no you need that. i mean he, he can't go in warm and fuzzy it won't work i wouldn't think yeah
0: and and his audience is his audience because they know he's going in to fight for them yeah So, I mean, a big part of this is realizing who you are, where do you come from? How do you want to get your own message across? Like just the way you were speaking, it's, you're helping to uplift people. Trying. Yeah. And so your style is based on that. I don't know that that I ever like looked at an interview as a way of uplifting somebody, but it's 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 a very interesting way for me to look at it because interestingly, I don't do it in interviews, but when I give speeches or workshops that's that's what I do I'm uplifting
1: people that's the intention,
0: yeah, and it you know we've been talking about this over the last couple of days, and you just lit the light bulb in my head because I, I've been saying to myself, well, what, what's going on? Uh, I'm kind of moving into a place where I'm like a player coach now. And it, it's, that's not who I was, but I'm, I'm finding that I really like enjoy this in a way that I didn't get out of writing a story in a magazine. And I just understood why in this conversation, because it allows me to do what you do in an interview. It allows me to help uplift people. So if people are working at a company and the company is not hiring the right people because they're not interviewing them in the right way, I can give them information that is going to help them hire better and have a better company. And that makes me feel great. I don't, and and at the end of it, they're saying thank you and hugging me. Generally, at the end of an interview, I may, I, I hug people sometimes at the end of interviews. Uh, and, and people say thanks, but it's a different kind of thanks. It's when somebody walks out of an interview and says thanks, it's, hey, that was a really good time. When somebody walks out of a workshop and says thank you. It's a very different thing. It's like there was this one woman, man, this is just like hitting me as we're talking, who at the end of this workshop says, you know, I spend more time on my job than I do at home. And I hire the people that are around me on my job. And I didn't know any of this about interviewing until, until you told us. And this is going to affect all the people that I put around me going forward. Like, thank you. And that was like, that was a, an experience that I'd never had before. So this, this is why I, I'm just understanding this now, why I'm compelled to go in this other direction.
1: Well, I'm excited to see the new direction and... We also have some barbecue to eat in the not too distant future. So I think, uh, this has been great fun. We have so much more. We could talk about, um, how to approach second time interviews. We were going to talk about George Clooney. Maybe that'll be in the part, part three. (laughs) There's so much, so much that we could cover and so many great stories, but where can people find you online and where can they say hi? Uh,
0: we've got CalFussman.com, and, uh, I just got Kevin, the manager to uh, make sure that you send an email in. He'll Kevin, get it to me. Kevin, the manager, Kevin, the manager, he'll get it to me and, uh, we'll get back to you.
1: And then on Twitter, I think you're just, is it at Cal Fussman?
0: Yeah. I got to do a better job on, the, uh, on Twitter.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll have you, uh, uh that, see if I can get Jocko willing to sit you down and give you a tutorial. <laughs> You know, <laughs> he's it's got a, plenty to do, but he's doing a great job on Twitter. Uh, I'd love to meet
0: Jocko. He's, that he's a great incri- talk.
1: he's incredible. Yeah. He's an, he's an incredible human being. Tough, tough young man, that Jocko. Uh, well, Cal, this is always so much fun. Thank you for taking the time. And, uh, I think I need to feed you more yerba mate, man. That, that was, that was a hell, of, that was a hell of a tear. That was good.
0: Well, you know, what, what, what people don't realize is, uh, we don't know if the last installment was affected by the last tea this this caramel <laughs> tea that i didn't realize like puts you away so, it,
1: that's right that's right so last night I, we uh, we've having tea and i was like cal you want some tea he's like sure and there's a big collection of tea and so after we did the evening the pm session interview yesterday <laughs> i said Cal's like, yeah, I really, I like this tea. And he pointed to the caramel bedtime tea, which literally in the past when I've taken it it has made me feel like Leonardo DiCaprio at the payphone in Wolf of Wall Street. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, holy God, I can't believe you're even standing right now. (laughs) Very impressed. You powered through that. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll focus on the, the South American stimulants, meaning yerba mate in the future, perhaps. But, uh, guys listening yeah we we will have uh links to everything we can track down in the show notes of course uh cal's site and social and so on please say hi to him and anything else to add before we we uh sign off
0: well it, 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 this is the, the whole weekend's been an absolute delight i can i i come out of here almost a changed man i mean i it it sounds it sounds out we've had like about 36 hours of conversation and that part of you that uplifting part of you has like taken me to places i'm i'm just starting light bulbs are just starting to go off in my mind uh, and so i can't wait to come back for the third because i don't know where you're going to take me
1: that time. <laughs> well it's uh it's just a joy to hang out with you, man. And uh, if, if if I can, in my own meandering way, uh, offer a few things from the the path that i've already traveled then that makes my whole weekend so uh and i I always learn so much from you so i feel like very selfishly i'm learning a lot more than i'm giving out but i don't know about that but but i (laughs) am fixing your shoulder with the sauna (laughs) (laughs) we have uh we have this barrel sauna which came from specs developed by Laird hamilton and then i think either duplicated or refined by rick rubin uh when we actually recorded the interview in there and burned our hands on the mics but uh, so many adventures to have, and uh, we're just getting started. So, everybody listening, you can find the show notes at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast, as always, for this episode and every other. And until next time, thank you for listening. of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it.